0: This morning's scripture reading is from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated.
1: In 2016, HGTV was the most watched cable network on television. The third most, excuse me. And most of us could probably assume why that is: uh, home renovation shows, right? There's there's nobody in here who doesn't who doesn't just love a little Chip and Joanna Gaines, right? And so whether it's Fixer Upper or Renovation Rescue or House Hunters or Love It or List It or Orlando's very own Zombie House Flippers, these renovation home renovation shows are almost endless. And so one of the senior VPs at HGTV says this, we've found that our viewers' appetite for renovation programming is virtually insatiable. And so I'm wondering, what is it about us that makes us love these shows so much? Why is it that we love renovation shows? What makes them so appealing? Well, I think the first thing is is that restoration and renovation in real life is actually incredibly difficult work, Right. It takes weeks, months, maybe even years in order to, to get a, a full renovation job done, and yet the TV show makes it happen in an hour. Beginning, middle, and closure. We're happy. Right? And we all know that in real life, the financial costs, the man hours, the headache, the frustrations are all cut out of the show, but we don't care. I think the second reason, though, is that we love these shows because we love it when we get to see something that's fallen and in a state of disrepair, renovated and restored to its former glory. I think we love that. There's something innate in us that really enjoys seeing that. And so home reno shows offer us that. And this morning, when we look at this aspect of the cross, restoration is what it's all about. This aspect of the cross is all about restoration, the restoration of humanity in the realm of creation. And so if you have your Bible or a worship guide, you're going to need to open it uh, to Romans chapter five because we're going to be looking at this text together. Now, if you look right there in verse 12, it cues us to remember a story. Verse 12 starts off like this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, now, verse 14 goes on to name this one man Adam. And, and I realize that the New Testament assumes a story. It assumes a tradition, a context. And without that context, without that story in mind, a lot of this doesn't make that much sense. But, but I want to warn you about something. The story of human history that Paul is assuming and that he's going to be drawing from here is sharply contrasted to the individualistic kind of self-actualizing story of Western culture that we are all deeply steeped in. I even found myself as I was preparing to preach this, asking myself, do I really believe this? Do I really buy what Paul's saying here? And so I would just invite you, as you're being challenged by Paul's uh, rendition of human history based on what the scriptures teach, I just invite you to, to let it challenge your own assumptions, to maybe doubt your doubts about what he's saying. So the story of Adam that he's referenced here, that the Apostle Paul is referencing, it plays out in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. Genesis 1 and 2 are are precious because what they do for us is they depict the world as it was created to be. The world that we all long for, the world without sin and death. And so in order to see what true restoration would be like, we have to have some sort of a picture of what the original glory of something was. And so in Genesis 1 and 2, we hear that the first humans, Adam and Eve, were made in the image of God. They were made to bear God's image. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright describes this image of God as an angled mirror. And and what he means by that is that in, in a real way, we were meant to reflect the wise rule of our creator to the creation, but also to reflect the praises of creation back up to our creator. This bearing of the image of God, this kind of twofold reflecting, is our human vocation. Every human being has been called to bear the image of God well. Now, if you were paying attention closely to our call to worship Psalm 8, it actually shows us both aspects of our calling as image bearers. It begins in verse one by praising the creator saying, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then it moves from praising the Lord on behalf of creation. It moves in verses five through eight to talk about our right to wisely rule in creation on God's behalf. And it says this, you have crea- you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. And so you see this kind of universal, all encompassing role that humanity plays in creation. But before the psalm ends, it goes back again and recognizes that our reign and our rule is underneath the reign and rule of the one Lord. And so it finishes exactly where it began. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, not our name, in all the earth. And so this picture that Psalm 8 gives us is the human vocation. It's what we were made for. We were made to worshipfully enjoy our good God on behalf of creation and to wisely rule the good creation on behalf of our God. That's what it means to bear God's image. Humanity was given this, this status and this responsibility in God's creation. All things were intended to flourish as Adam extended God's loving rule into the world. But along came a snake. And if you know the story, a serpent comes into the garden that Adam and Eve were given to work and to keep. And this serpent misled Eve and Adam, promising them that they would be truly godlike if they would simply disregard their Creator's words and, and instead regard the words of the serpent. And so, whereas the, the, the Creator, God, He spoke to them and he, he warned them of eating of the forbidden tree, the serpent flatly contradicts God's warning and says, You will not surely die. And so, choosing to revere the serpent's invitation, to take and eat over the Lord's warning, Eve took and ate and gave some to her husband Adam, who was with her. And in this act of heeding the serpent over God, in preferring the creature over the creator, a great disordering took place. Through Adam's disobedience, he handed over his authority to the serpent who then enthroned his henchmen, sin and death, to reign on Adam's rightful throne over all of creation. That's a complex statement, but we'll unpack that a little bit. Now, with that backdrop, uh, we go back to Romans 5.17, and it says this, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. And you can see that death is personified here. Death is seen sitting on the throne that Adam was meant to sit on. So Adam's rightful authority has been usurped by sin and death. And so with that in mind, let's look again at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now when verse 12 says, quote, all sinned, it's not referring to the fact that we've all individually committed sins, although that is true. We've all sinned in that way, and yet this is a far more shocking assertion. When it says all sinned, what it means is that we all sinned in Adam. In other words, all of humanity became sinners because of Adam's disobedience. We were all in him when he fell, and so we have all fallen. Now this is expounded throughout the rest of this passage. Verse 15 says, many died through one man's trespass. Verse 16 says, for the judgment following, one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. I think Paul knows that this is going to be contested. And so he spends the rest of this chunk just unpacking it time and time again. Now, Christians have historically called this original sin. That's the term that we've given for for the fact that all human beings everywhere and in all time are complicit in Adam's sin. Now, if you were a school-aged child raised in the United States in the 17th century, most likely you would have learned how to read using a book called The New England Primer. And, and in this book, it was kind of designed with these little rhymes to teach kids the alphabet and help them to remember it, things like that. And, and as we read it today, there's some parts of it that are a little intense. So, for instance, the C, right, to learn the letter C, it has a picture of a cat and a mouse, and it says, The cat doth play... And after slay. And I'm just thinking about these poor little New England children. Imagine a cat just slaying this mouse, right? And then it goes on and, and, and F reads like this: it says, the idle fool is whipped at school. And I sent an email to Raquel asking if we could use this in City Kids, and uh I'm kidding. But I think that letter A is actually significant for our text today. Letter A reads like this. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. And so interestingly, early Americans found original sin to be an important enough topic that they'd be willing to teach it to their children when learning the alphabet, no less. It's a significantly important doctrine of the Christian faith. But now you may be objecting in your mind. I get it. You might be thinking, you've just proved my point that this is, that original sin is some outdated kind of puritanical belief. How is this fair? Why should all of humanity suffer because of Adam's transgression? And I think it's a legitimate objection. It's understandable, uh, but I think it misses the point. The first thing I would say is to quote Jesus, he who is without sin cast the first stone she who is without sin cast the first stone, right? Even though we've been found guilty in Adam's sin, we have all sinned like Adam. Who among us has not given our authority, conceded it over to the gods of money, to the gods of sex, to the gods of power, letting them, serving them rather than using them to serve our creator. And so while it is true that we're all found guilty in Adam's sin, doesn't ne- negate the fact that we have all chosen to reject our creator in our own ways. But the second thing I would, I would bring up is that, uh, there's an author named Alain de Baton, and he's actually a, a prominent atheistic author, and he defends original sin. This is why. It might sound depressing, but it may turn out to be a curious relief to be told that our lives are not, our lives are awry, not by coincidence, But by definition, what Batan is getting at is that original sin makes sense of our common experience as fallen human beings. We are also keenly aware that we are not what we ought to be. That some have said original sin is maybe the most empirically provable of all Christian theology. You just look out in the world and you see original sin at play. And so since we have this intuitive knowledge that something is deeply wrong with us, original sin helps name that and give us a story to show where it's come from. Now, after World War II, there were children of high-ranking Nazis that when they were when the war ended, they were still pretty young. And yet, as they grew up, they still felt this enormous responsibility for the evil that their parents had done. And one example is Reinhard Heydrich. Now, Heideric was one of the main architects of the Holocaust, Um, and he left behind a nephew. And as this nephew grew up, he almost committed suicide because of the fact that he was the nephew of such a moral monster. And instead of that, he ended up spending his life trying to make amends for what his forefather had done. Now, you might disagree whether or not he should have felt responsibility for what his uncle had done. But I think what it does is it points to this sense that we all know that we are socially interconnected, that we kind of hang together, that no man is an island, that no woman is an island. And so in some way, we all belong together and we all share responsibility for one another and for creation. Original sin recognizes this and it names it for us. It names the sense that we all have that we are complicit in the failure of humanity. And it also, finally, levels the playing field. Right? If, if this is true, who has reason for superiority? If this is true, how could anybody look down haughtily on somebody else? Original sin levels the playing field. So to sum up, because Adam exchanged the glory of God for a lie, because he handed over his God-given authority to the tyranny of sin and death, we live in that world today. Now, original sin's not all gloom, though. In fact, Paul brings it up here in order to give us a reason to hope. And that hope begins in verse 14. So if you look there, it says that Adam is important because Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Adam is a type, he's a pattern, he's a foreshadowing of this one who was to come. This second Adam who would come and undo Adam's undoing. This final Adam who would come to reverse Adam's curse. This last Adam that would come to restore what Adam had lost. Into this world tyrannized by sin and death, Jesus of Nazareth is born. And when Jesus steps on the scene, he is the true king of creation that Adam was meant to be. Now, if you read through the Gospels, you notice that wherever Jesus goes, the curse is being reversed. The dominion of sin and death is being overthrown, right? I mean, the blind see, the deaf hear. People who are oppressed by demons are set free. They're liberated. And as we see this dominion of darkness overthrown, even death has to flee from three simple words out of Jesus's mouth. Lazarus, come out. Jesus is the true king. Now you may remember, if you're familiar with some of these stories, you may remember the story of of Jesus going out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Or as one author put it, when Jesus and the devil sort out who works for whom. Now in the gospel of Matthew, it records it like this. It says, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, said to Jesus, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, when we read this, we think the devil is delusional, right? We think, does he know who he's talking to? Hear me the devil was not making an empty promise. The devil actually does have authority over all of these kingdoms and over all of the world. And guess where he got it from? From Adam. Adam handed over his rightful rule to the devil who now has this control. And so the gospel of Mark records the same event a little bit more succinctly. It says, and Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, Jesus, like the first Adam, was tempted by Satan. And Jesus prevailed where Adam failed. But I love how how the author of the Gospel of Mark, how Mark portrays this. He says, Jesus was with the wild animals. Did you catch that? I mean, if we're reading through it, you might just kind of read past it and think nothing of it, but but I, I can't help but think of this and imagine like Cinderella in her in her house cleaning and Cinderella, right? The, the little birds are just like flying around and some of you are like, hey, stick to preaching, just stay to the text. And that's probably not at all what it was like, but that's just the picture that comes to my mind that Jesus is with the wild animals. But what Mark wants to do with this simple phrase, he wants to evoke in your imaginations that Jesus is the new and final Adam, that the king has come, that he's here. He's the one who's going to wisely rule over the beasts of the field, over the birds of the heavens, over the fish of the sea, as Psalm 8 put it. Jesus was with the wild animals as the second and final Adam. Now, the life of Jesus is important because as verse 19 of, of Romans 5 shows us, it says, by the one man's, that's Jesus, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, when it says the one man's obedience, it's referring to the whole of Jesus's life as he bears the image of God, as he fulfills the human vocation that Adam and all of us were meant to fulfill. But more than that, Jesus completely humbled himself by becoming obedient to to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, to truly reverse the curse of Adam's disobedience, Jesus needed to dethrone sin and death. And since because Adam brought death into the world by eating from the tree, Jesus brought life into the world by dying on a tree. Because Adam, to become like God, took from the tree. Jesus, as God, gave his life upon the tree. Just as it was not our sin, but Adam's that resulted in death, so it is not our righteousness, but Christ's that leads to life. So it is not our righteousness. So it is that when Adam trespassed, we were there with him. In the same way, when Christ died and rose, we were there with him. Adam was the inaugurator of humanity, and Jesus comes as the inaugurator of a new humanity. The way that verse 18 puts it is like this. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. As the final Adam, Jesus died Adam's death. As the final Adam, Jesus laid death in his grave. As the final Adam, Jesus brought life to life. And so just as all who are in Adam are under sin and death, so now all who are in Jesus are under grace and life. All of these things are summed up in Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus became nothing less than a new creation and a new humanity. If you know the story, you know that when Jesus rose from the dead, he came back and he, he spoke to his disciples and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now that we know the story of Adam, that phrase comes to light in a new way. Jesus in his death and in his resurrection won back everything that Adam lost in the fall. But although Jesus, as the final Adam, is the rightful king of creation, verse 17 is actually kind of fascinating. Look with me at, at who's reigning in verse 17. It says this, For if because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life, through the one man, Jesus Christ. This wouldn't be a full restoration unless the original glory of humanity was restored. And so verse 17 is the goal of salvation, the restoration of the human vocation to reign in all of creation. That's what verse 17 is about. That is what Jesus came to do as the final Adam. And so, in order to restore us to our rightful reign, Jesus renovates those who receive his grace. Jesus renovates those who receive his grace. And so, in closing, what kind of people must we become in order to reign with the original glory that God gave to Adam and that was restored in Jesus? What kind of people must we become? First, we must recognize that all of us in this room are either in Adam or in Christ. No middle ground. And so if you are in Adam, what that means is that you remain under the dominion of sin and death. And verse 17 calls you right now, calls you to receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness so that you may reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And so we receive this this free gift that's offered to you with open and empty hands of faith. And we are transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. We move from being in Adam to being in Jesus under the reign of grace and life. Second, we must again wisely rule the good creation on behalf of God. That was our, our true and original vocation, and it hasn't been lost. And so your work is a means of bringing chaos to order. It's a means of reclaiming our dominion under the rule of Christ. Your day, nine to five, Monday through Friday. Your household is a place where people learn to become, learn to bear the image of God well. What an important calling that is to raise up image bearers so they bear the image of God well. If you, were to, if you were to drive around and look and see, or even better yet, walk around your neighborhood, you will see that there's many places where sin and death still reign. And so we are called, we've been placed, we've been sent into these places to bear witness in word and in deed that the rightful king is back on his throne. Now, finally, the third, the third thing that we must become in order to be those who would reign with the original glory that God gave to Adam and was restored in Jesus is that we must worshipfully enjoy our good God on behalf of creation. Now, this means a refusal to give our lives to lesser gods. If you're reading with us in community Bible reading, that means that you read Psalm 115. You probably prayed Psalm 115 yesterday. And verse 8 of Psalm 115 says this, Those who make idols become like them. So do all who trust in them. Worship is formative. You become like, you bear the image of whatever you give yourself to in worship. And so instead, instead of giving yourself to lesser gods, we participate in God's renovating work in our lives. Worshiping him, we become like him. And as we become like him, we better bear his image in the world. Now, I want to close with a quote from C.S. Lewis. In his book, Mere Christianity, he says this. Imagine yourself a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. We participate with God in his renovation project, in his fixer upper, if you will, so that we might bear his image and become the kind of people who reign on his behalf, extending his loving rules so that we might see our communities flourish through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So with that, would you pray with me? Father, our good God, the one who's called us to bear your image in this world, would you draw us now by your Holy Spirit to come and receive the free gift, the abundance of grace that's in Jesus. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would accompany your word with power. Praying these things
0: in Jesus' name. Amen.